And so in addition to just speaking today, I get to do something really cool, and that's that I get to kick off our new series here at Elevation. Like you saw from the bumper, it's called Repeat. And there's a lot of layers to this new series called Repeat, but first and foremost, of course, it's inspired by the Bible, by God's word, specifically out of Philippians 3.1. I'm going to read from the message. The Bible says, and that's about it, friends. Be glad in God. I don't mind repeating what I have written in earlier letters, and I hope you don't mind hearing it again. Better safe than sorry. So here goes. What Paul is talking about in this is he's saying, I'm going to tell you guys the same things I've told you before. I'm going to write about the same things I've already written about. And I hope you don't mind hearing it again. Because as Christians, we shouldn't mind hearing those same spiritual truths over and over again. I know how easy it is for me when I'm not hearing those things regularly to begin to drift, to begin to wander. So when you come to church and Pastor Daniel's preaching on God's love again, or he's talking about how awesome Jesus is, don't be like, oh man, I already know this. No, these are the things that we need to repeatedly be told and keep them in front of us. So it's out of that, but it's also based on this rule of seven, which is a kind of a marketing axiom, which says that as people, we need to hear or see or interact with a product at least seven times before we'll really consider purchasing that product. So I need to see the new ad for the crazy thing Taco Bell has strummed up before I'll go out and buy and ultimately eat that thing. That same rule applies to a car, a TV, whatever it might be, that the more times we hear about it, the more likely we are to buy that thing. Now that's been true for me in my walk with God that I didn't accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior the first time I heard about him. I didn't decide to read and pray daily the first time I heard about it. Probably not even the seventh time, maybe like the hundredth or five hundredth or thousandth time I heard about God and heard about those spiritual disciplines when I decided to take action on that. And the same is true for us as Christians, that if we want to take those steps, do those things that are our responsibility to get closer to God, which are our spiritual disciplines, our spiritual habits, reading your Bible, praying, worshiping, fasting, we need to hear about those things repeatedly before we buy in and decide to do them. And it also stands to reason then that those are things that we need to repeat in our lives, right? You don't read the Bible once and then you're done. You don't pray once and then you're done with that. You're like, God, I'm good. I talked to you that one time. It was great. Loved it. Good for the rest of my life. <laughs> no, these are spiritual disciplines are things that we repeat in our lives. Right. And the series is all about how we have to continue to repeat those things to get closer to God and be the people he's called us to be. So that's what the repeat series is all about. Will you guys pray with me? Dear Lord, I just thank you for all that you are. Thank you for your goodness, for your love, just for everything that you're doing in this place, God. We just invite you in today, God, to just be with us, speak to us. Let us hear from you, Lord. Open our hearts and minds to what you have for us today, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know what your guys' experiences were like growing up, but I didn't get called by my given name of David all that much growing up. See, my name's David, my dad's name is David, my grandpa's name is David, I had an uncle named David. It was just really confusing to throw the name David out at family function. It was just a total source for confusion. So I got called a lot of nicknames growing up. One specific one being Baby David. I'm 27 years old, I got called Baby David about four days ago on Christmas. And so I still get called that nickname to this day. Other nicknames include Scooby-Doo, Boo-Boo, Davy Joe, just wonderful things. I think that it's literally true that my mom has probably called me more nicknames in my life than the name that she gave me, that she put on my birth certificate. She's called me other stuff. I don't know what's up with that, but it's what's happened. 
And so I didn't really get called my name a lot growing up. But when I did hear my name was when I was in trouble. And now I didn't do a lot of super dumb stuff growing up, but I said a lot of dumb stuff <laughs> growing up. And so when I'd be in conversation with my parents and I heard David come out, I knew I had crossed a line and I was in trouble. And kind of that cliched thing too, where if I heard my first and my middle name, which is David Josiah, then I knew I was really in trouble. I was about to get grounded. There's about to be some punishment coming my way. Did anyone else have that experience, the first middle name thing? Yeah, it's kind of a common, common thing that we have. I don't know why parents give us these names and they don't tell us they're going to use them as weapons later on in our life. <laughs> that doesn't really seem fair to me, but alas, here we are. And I had an interesting experience a few years ago where I was reading in the Bible, and I was doing the Bible in a year plan that some of us do here at the church, and I was reading through a version I hadn't read through at that point, which was the English Standard Version or the ESV, and the reading for that day was 1 Kings 13. Um, and it's a chapter I'd read before, never really taken notice of it, but this time I was reading in the ESV, and I came to the second verse in 1 Kings 13, which says, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. Now, if I didn't know what the fear of God was before I read my first and middle name in the Bible, I knew what it was in that moment. If you think you're in trouble when you hear your first and your middle name from your parents, imagine reading it in the Bible. I was ready for God to take me away. I was like, I don't know what I've done. My life is over. It was a good run. Take me away, Lord. I was ready to be punished. Now, of course, after I came to my senses, I realized, you know, I'm not quite egotistical enough to think that the translator of the ESV put it in that order specifically so I would have the fear of God putting me on that given day. But what it did do is it made me really pay attention to what happened in the rest of 1 Kings 13. And what I learned is that it's a really incredible story in that one chapter in the Bible. It's a story that not only can we learn a lot from, but it's also just a bonkers banana story. <laughs> and it's the story I want to share with you guys today. And so in 1 Kings 13, we're introduced to kind of our main character, who's known only by the title Man of God, which is just a great title. If you can just go by that, go by that, or Woman of God, great title. Um, he's known only as the man of God, and he's a prophet. And essentially what that means is he's God's chosen mouthpiece to his people Israel. God would speak words of wisdom, words of instruction, a lot of words of rebuke, because Israel was pretty dumb a lot. Um, and he, God would speak those words through prophets. And so the man of God was tasked by God to go speak to the king, whose name was Jeroboam during that time, and essentially prophesy to him about the downfall of his kingdom, that Josiah, who we read about, was going to be born to the house of David, and he was going to tear down the high places, he was going to end Jeroboam's reign, and he was going to bring Israel back to God. So the man of God travels from where he's at in Judea to Bethel and prophesies this thing to the king. And when he does that, the king reaches out to grab him. And as he does that, the king's arm shrivels up. And upon seeing that, the king begs the man of God to pray to his God to have his arm restored. And he does that, and the king's arm is restored. And when that happens, it's going to get even crazier from here, guys, I promise. <laughs> When that happens, the king invites the man of God to his house for dinner. He says, hey, come back and dine with me. And the man of God gives a really interesting response, which is where I want to pick up reading in the Bible, in 1 Kings 13, verses 8 and 9. And the man of God said to the king, if you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. 
So we have this man of God who has gone to the king and prophesied about his downfall, and then he has rejected his dinner invitation. Why? Because God commanded him not to. And we learned three interesting things here about the man of God and what God has told him to do. First is go and prophesy to the king. Second is go back home a different way than the way you came. And third is don't eat or drink until you make it back home. And now two of these three things make sense to me. One, go and prophesy. That was his whole mission, his whole goal. That makes sense. Second, go back a different way than the way you came. You just prophesied to the king about his downfall. You rejected his dinner invitation. He might be kind of mad and send someone after you. So go back a different way. That makes sense to me, right? But the don't eat or drink until you get back home has always been curious to me because if I was God, and I know we're all happy I'm not, I'm happy I'm not. But if I was God, I would have wanted my man of God to be well-nourished, to be hydrated, have the strength. He needed to travel this great distance and do this incredibly hard thing. But instead, God says, no, I don't want you to eat or drink until you make it back home. Now, if you've been in church for long, you probably are already associating this thing of not eating or drinking for a godly purpose with fasting, right? And so that's what I really want to talk about today is the spiritual habit, the spiritual discipline of fasting. And how we define fasting here at the church is simply removing something to create space for God to fill. So we take something out of our lives, food, drink, entertainment, social media, whatever, and we take that away, and for a certain period of time, we often do 21 days here at the church, we remove that in order to create space for God to come in and fill, because like Pastor Daniel talked about earlier, we believe that we have a God who is madly in love with us, who wants to be in relationship with us, so much so that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us, and so when we create space for God to fill, he absolutely will come in and fill that space, because he loves us, and he wants to be in relationship with us. So that's what fact is all about. And now, again, like Pastor Daniel mentioned earlier, I know when you hear fasting, you don't get super excited. I mean, I know when Pastor told me I was going to get the opportunity to preach on Sunday, I was super pumped. And then he told me it was going to be about fasting. And I was significantly <laughs> less excited about that. Because it's not something anyone gets fired up to speak about or to hear about. I mean, if you think back about your favorite 10 sermons you've heard, your favorite 20, 25, 50, 100, 1,000, you're probably not going to have one about fasting in there. Maybe you do, and that's great. I'd love to hear it. But it's probably not your favorite topic to hear about. But it is something that is really, really important and something I'm passionate about. So I want to share kind of three reasons why fasting is important, why I think we should all consider making fasting a spiritual habit, a spiritual discipline that we use in our lives. And the first reason why fasting is important is it gets us closer to God. Like we talked about, we remove things in order to create space for God to fill, and he comes in to fill that space. And the end result of that, the end result of our fast is that we get closer to God. We get more of him in our lives. We get more of his presence. We get to know him and his word more. And ultimately, I think that's what we're all after as Christians, is we want to get closer to God, become more the men and women that he's calling us to be. But now, if that's not a good enough reason, I have a second reason. The second reason why fasting is important is because Jesus expects us to do it. In Matthew 6, 16, Jesus said, and when you fast. And in Matthew 9, 15, he said, and then you will fast. So I don't know about you, but as a Christian, as a literal follower of Christ, when Jesus expects me to do something, I want to be doing that thing. And Jesus' words were clear. He said, when and then. He didn't say, if you fast. He didn't say, maybe you'll fast. No, he said, when you fast, and then you will fast. So Jesus expects us to fast, and that's a good enough reason for me to fast. But then the third reason why I think we should all fast is it helps us disconnect from the world. 
We have a quote here, we love at the church. It's in our Elevate curriculum. Pastor Daniel's used it from stage before. And it's by Pierre Tejard de Chardin. And it says, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. What this means is first and foremost, we are not human. First and foremost, we are spiritual beings who have a soul and an eternal purpose. There's an eternal part of us. But when you think about fasting, all of the things that we fast are human things, right? I don't think anyone has ever been like, I'm going to fast reading my Bible. And a pastor has been like, yes, that's a great idea. <laughs> no, we fast human things in order to create more space to feed the spiritual aspect of us. And so we, it, that helps us disconnect from the world and by God, in which all leads back to the first reason of ultimately it helps us get closer to God. So those are the reasons why I think we should all fast. Now I want to get back to our story of the man of God. Last time we left him, he had just rejected the king's invitation. And he does that, and he gets back on the road. And as he's on the road, word of what he's done, what he's prophesied to the king, gets out in Bethel. And there's an older prophet in Bethel who hears what he's done and wants to meet him. So the old prophet gets on his donkey and goes and finds the man of God along the road. And as he's traveling along the road, he finds him, and he invites him back to his house, much in the same way the king did. And the man of God gives a very similar response to the one he gave the king, where he says, no, I can't come back with you. God commanded me not to. But the old prophet is a little bit more persistent than the, ki than the king was. And he ends up saying this in 1 Kings 13, verses 18 through 19. And this is the old prophet speaking to the man of God. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. So the scripture is clear that the old prophet was not a false prophet. He wasn't a prophet for some other God or deity. He was a real prophet of the capital G God. And he just straight up lies to our other prophet, the man of God, to get him to go back and eat with him. He lies about an angel coming back or coming and talking to him, telling him to do something. And it urges and makes the man of God believe him. And he goes back and eats and drinks with him. And when they're reclining at the table, the old prophet begins to give a true prophecy to the man of God, where he essentially prophesies that the man of God is not going to make it back home, that he's going to die because he broke the command of the Lord not to eat or drink in that place. So then the man of God gets up and is like, this was a super great dinner. So glad I came home. This was really life-giving. You told me I'm going to die. This was awesome. I love you so much. And he goes and he gets on the road. And in 1 Kings 13, 24, we end our story. Where it says, and as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. So the man of God ends up getting mauled by a lion. This is a crazy story. You have him going and prophesying to the king about the king's downfall. He rejects the king's offer. He goes, and an older prophet lies to him to come back to his house, and ultimately he gets killed by a lion. Now, I want to be clear about one thing here, is that I in no way think if you break your fast or if you don't follow a command from God that you're going to get killed by a lion. I do not believe that that is going to happen to you. You can rest easy. I've screwed up plenty of times and broken my fast. Still here. Still here. But there are consequences when we break the commands of the Lord, of course. And the thing that's really interesting about this story is we know that the scripture is clear that the man of God ended up losing his life because he broke the command God had given him to not eat or drink. 
But the reason he broke that command is because he trusted the old prophet. And I think that's a lot more interesting. Ultimately, he trusted the older prophet more than he trusted what God had told him. He trusted the older prophet more than he trusted in his own relationship with God. And I don't know about you guys, I can't relate to being killed by a lion, but I can relate to that a lot. That when God tells me something, I'm more likely to believe what someone else around me says. Whether that would be pastor, which, I, pastor, I know you're not going to lie to me and it's not going to get me killed by a lion. But whether anyone else in my life who I trust, I often trust their relationship with God more than I trust my own. Because I know how easily I screw things up. How easily I can get my signals mixed and think I'm hearing from God, but it's really what I want. But ultimately, that's what costs the man of God his life. And I don't want that to be my case. I want to know the voice of God better than I know anything. That when he speaks, I hear him and I know it. And I hold on to that no matter what. That no matter what the world throws at me. Yeah. That no matter what the world or the enemy tries to throw at me, I know that voice and I stick to it. And the way that we get to that point, the way that we can do that is through these spiritual disciplines that we're talking about. The only way that we know sure well to get closer to God is to spend time with him, to develop that relationship, which we do through our spiritual disciplines like praying, reading our Bible, worshiping, and of course, fasting. And fasting is super important because it leads to that end result of getting closer to God and knowing his voice above all the noise. So now I want to share three reasons or three things fasting should be. So if you're fasting for the first time or the hundredth time, these are things or checkpoints that I think all of our fasts need to hit if we want to be successful in our fast and ultimately get more of God and less of ourselves. So the first thing I think fasting should be is sacrificial. I know. It's not the fun one. It's not the fun one to start with because most people think about fasting and they think God wants to hurt me. God wants me to be bored. He wants me to be hungry. Those things aren't true, guys. God does not really care about your hamburger. He doesn't really care about your social media platforms. He doesn't really care about that stuff. What he wants when you fast is he wants your heart. And it just stands to reason that if we define fasting as removing something to create space for God to fill, then if we want to give God space to fill, we have to give up something that is taking up space in our lives. right? And anything that's taking up space in our lives is going to be a sacrifice. My wife, Brittany, who I spoke about earlier, she often, when we do 21 days of prayer, will fast social media. She does this thing that I love where she takes all the social media apps on her phone and she puts them in a new folder for those 21 days that she calls danger. <laughs> and that way she knows not to go to that folder, not to go to those apps because she's giving them up for God. And I love that because it's a fast that creates a lot of space and time for God. And it's, I think, a hard fast. Pastor Daniel shared just a few weeks ago that the average person spends two hours on social media a day. So you literally can quantify how much time and space that frees up for God. I could get up here and talk about how that's a hard fast, giving up two hours of social media. And you're like, that's a really hard fast. And it's hard for me. I often fast social media too. And I would tell you that and you'd be like, oh, David, that's so hard. How do you do? And I'd be like, it's okay. You can do it too. And then someone here who knows me would yell out, liar, because I'm not on social media at all. And so I'm fasting social media 365 days a year. And it's great. It creates a lot of space for God. But my point is, what's sacrificial for Brittany, what's sacrificial for you, might not be what's sacrificial for me. And so we all have to pray and seek God about what we're supposed to fast during those times. And so I believe that if you're thinking about fasting when we start this coming Saturday, and you want to know what to fast, you're not sure, seek God and he will tell you. 
But I think there's also another step you can take, and it's things I like to call mini fasts or one day fasts, where we have literally five days between now and when 21 days starts. And if you don't know what to fast, take one thing and fast it every day. So on Monday, fast lunch. On Tuesday, fast social media. Wednesday, fast TV. Whatever you're thinking about fasting, and see what God speaks to you during those times. And now the purpose of this isn't to see what is the easiest and then do that one. I would argue that probably you're supposed to fast whatever's the hardest if God doesn't speak to you specifically about one thing, but that's just my take on it. But our fasts need to be sacrificial because in order to create space for God to fill, we have to give up something that's taking up space. And the second thing I believe our fasts need to be is intentional, that we need to fast with a plan and a purpose. There's kind of two different facets to this. The first one is you have to use wisdom in everything you do, of course, but also in your fast. And that when you fast, if you have health or dietary reasons why you can't do a food fast or a specific fast, just don't do that fast. Or if you run a social media platform at your job, don't fast social media. You will get fired. And I don't really think that's God's will for your life. So you have to use wisdom in what you choose to fast. But the second thing, and I think probably the more important thing about why we have to have a plan before we fast, is because if we don't, a bunch of other junk is going to come in and get in that space that you've created. You see, the world, the enemy, the things around you don't want you to have that space for God. So whether well-intentioned or not, junk is going to come to try, is going to come in and fill that space if you don't protect it and have a plan for how you're going to give it to God. I remember when I fasted for the first time here at the church three or four years ago, I was like going to go all in. I was like, I'm going to fast all forms of digital entertainment, no TV, no video games, no movies. And as a man at this point who was in his mid-20s and living in his parents' basement, that freed up a lot of time for me. I had a lot of time not doing that stuff. But I didn't have a plan for how I was going to use it, so I ended up like reorganizing my closet. I reread all the Harry Potter books. I did all this other stuff <laughs> that wasn't getting closer to God. And so I ended up not getting as close to God as I could have during that time because I didn't have a plan for how I was going to use it. And now you might fill it with stuff that's not bad, right? You're not going to go out and just like be like, I'm giving myself for God. Now I'm going to do a whole bunch of sinning instead. But you can fill it with stuff that gets in the way of your goal of getting closer to God. So we have to be intentional about how we fast. And a great way to do that is just to really think about what you're going to fast and plan out that time. Like, let's say you're giving up lunch for your fast. Don't plan to just work through that hour of lunch so you can go home early. Plan to take that time and set it apart for God. Read your Bible, pray, worship, listen to a sermon, read a book. Plan what you're going to do. If, let's say you watch two hours of TV every day. Well, one of those hours, you can come hang out with us here at the church during our 21 days prayer gatherings. It happened every day during the fast. And the other hour, you can spend with God in your own personal way. But have a plan for how you're going to spend that time and stick to that plan. Don't let junk and other things fill that space you've created for God. And then the last thing our fasts need to be are personal. And this comes out of Matthew 6, 16 through 18 which says, and when you fast, or sorry, and this is Jesus speaking, and he says, and when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. For they try to look miserable and disheveled, so people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face, <laughs> then no one will notice that you are fasting, except your father who knows what you do in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. So what Jesus is teaching us through the scripture is that ultimately our fast has to be personal. It can't be 
like the hypocrites do it. We can't do it so that we look better at church. We can't do it to get in Pastor Daniel or Pastor Gretchen's good graces to get a new spot on your team. You can't do it just so you can post on social media about how hard your fast is and get whatever brownie points you're trying to get on the internet. You have to fast in, with God to get closer to God. That has to be your motivation. Jesus is clear, anything other than that will cause us to not get the reward God has for us. Which ultimately, I think the reward God has for all of us in fasting is what we talked about earlier. It's more of him. And who doesn't want that? And if you want that, your fast has to be personal. And now don't get me wrong. We come together as a church during 21 days of prayer and do it together intentionally. But when we come and have our prayer gatherings, it's not an open mic night where we complain about how hard fasting is. Right? I don't get up here and I'm like, hey, guys, my name's David. I'm doing a food fast. It's really hard. I'm really hungry all the time. And then I go off the stage and everyone who else is doing fast, we huddle and we cry together. That's not what 21 days of prayer gatherings are all about. We come and we pray and we worship and we seek God as a church to build community, to pray for our city and our church and our nation. We do those things. You're not supposed to fast alone. I don't think, but you're supposed to fast personally with God. Your motivation and your heart for why you're doing it has to be pure. And so I believe fasting is super important. I shared the three reasons why I think we should all fast and then shared how our fasts need to be sacrificial, intentional, and personal. And now as I finish, I really just want to share a little bit about why fasting and spiritual disciplines are important to me. In order to do that, I need to talk a little bit more about my wife, Brittany. I said earlier, we've been married about a year and a half, and it really has been the best year and a half of my life. It's been incredible. Brittany is amazing. God has enabled us to do incredible things in our life, and he's amazing, and he's really come through. But this year and a half has also been really, really hard, and I know what you're thinking. It hasn't been hard because we're arguing about how to load the dishwasher or what curtains to buy. We've had those fights, but that's not what has made it hard. What has made this year and a half really difficult is that about five months into our marriage, on Brittany's birthday, we lost her grandma. And that's been hard. And it's actually still really hard, especially this time of year. And then earlier this year, my father-in-law, Steve, went in for a routine procedure and came out with a cancer di diagnosis. And we've been fighting that fight all year. This year and a half has been hard. It's hard because the circumstances are hard, but it's also hard because I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to love a wife and in-laws who are going through tragedy, who are suffering. No amount of premarital counseling, no amount of reading my Bible prepared me for that, to be a husband, to be a son-in-law to them. And I desperately want to do good for them. I desperately want to do the right things. I want to love them the way that God loves them. I want to help them get through it. I want to be a light in the darkness. But nothing prepared me for that. So during this time, I've been clinging to God with all that I have. Because I know the only chance that I have is to have so much more of him and so much less of myself. I have tried to do this thing on my own, and I have failed miserably. But now the stakes are too high. I can't do that. I can't let Brittany down. I can't fail her as her husband now. I can't fail my in-laws on top of all the other responsibilities that I have. And the only way that I can do that is to have God's strength. Wow. 
to know when I hear God's voice, to not be distracted from that. When God tells me what to do, when he helps lead me and guide me to not have anything that gets in the way of that. The only way I know to do that is to take these spiritual disciplines seriously, to read my Bible, to pray, to be here at church, to worship, to seek him, to fast. And guys, I don't know what 2019 has been like for you. I don't know what 2020 has in store for you. It might be all sunshine and rainbows. It might be all up and to the right, but I doubt it. I pray that is not the case for you, but I doubt it. Trials are gonna come, crises are gonna come, things are gonna happen. We live in a fallen and broken world. But if we wanna succeed in those things, we have to take our discipline seriously before we're in the trial, before we're in the crisis. So many people wait to fast until they need to hear from God. So many people wait to pray until they're desperate. So my encouragement for you guys today is don't wait for that moment. Fast, pray, seek God, get your spiritual disciplines right, repeat these things in your life before you're going through the darkness because it will prepare you as best you can to handle that. I'm not saying it's gonna be easy, but you'll do so much better if you're already leaning on God's strength during that time. So take these things seriously before you get there. And ultimately, if you want 2020 to be the best year of your life, it's not gonna be be because everything went right. It's not gonna be because you made a whole bunch more money or you got a lot more friends or more power. If you can look back at this time next year and say about 2020 that you were closer to God at the end of it than when you started it, that'll be your best year ever. If you have more of God's presence. And the only way I know for us to do that is to take these disciplines seriously, to take this repeat series seriously and do those things in our life. And so if you want that in your life, I really don't think there's any better way to start the new year than with 21 days of prayer and fasting. I know that it's a sacrifice. I know that it's not easy. I know that it takes time out of your day. But come and be here for those prayer gatherings. Come and join with us as a church, as a community, to get around the things of God and get more of him in our lives, hear his voice, know his voice, and hold on to that. Come and be a part of that. And I think God will do amazing things in your life in 2020. So now I just want to pray for all of us as we work on our spiritual disciplines, as we head into this time of prayer and fasting. So Lord, will you please just be with us God, give us the strength, give us the courage that we need to do the things that we need to do to get close to you. God, we're so thankful that you love us, that you desperately want to be in relationship with us, that when we create space, you come in and fill it. Lord, we thank you for that. Ask that you would be with all, be with all of us and lead us and guide us towards what to fast, how to protect it, how to invite you into our lives, and just help us to hear from you, God. We desperately want more of you and less of ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. I realized that when I was talking that some of you guys might not really know much about God or about Jesus, but the truth is, and what you need to know, is that we have a God who loves us, who is our Father in heaven, who desperately wants to be in relationship with us. So much so, in fact, that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins and ultimately be resurrected so that we can have life, we can have victory, and that we can know God through him. 
And so if you want to know that God who loves you so much, who is desperately in love with you, if you want to know this Jesus who came down to earth and died for your sins, I don't want to miss the opportunity to help you enter into that transformational relationship with Jesus. So if everyone will close their eyes and bow their heads, if you want to make that decision today, if you want to invite God and Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior, all you have to do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is your Lord. So I'm going to count to three in a second. And if you want to pray that prayer, if you want to make that declaration, Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I just want you to raise your hand on the count of three. One, two, three. Thank you. Great job, guys. Great job. Amen, amen. One more second here. Awesome. You can put your hands down. And now, if everyone will pray along with me, nobody's praying alone here at Elevation. Just repeat this after me. Dear Jesus, I didn't know that I needed you, but I know now. Thank you for dying for my sins. I invite you into my life as my Lord and Savior. Please transform me from the inside out. I leave my old ways behind and I walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, can we celebrate those decisions?